the thing that excites me most in the study of antiquity is that the field is expanding in a way that everyone thinks that humanities and public education and higher education and especially um, the study of European cultures is no longer relevant. And what I'm finding is that um, we're connecting more to the human element of classics, and this means that it's applicable to so many more people. This is The Mirror of Antiquity, where we see ourselves in the study of the ancient world. I'm Curtis Dozier. Finding that the more we insert the human element into classics, the easier it's becoming for me. I, I used to approach classics um, thinking that I needed to approach it as a scholar and divorce my personal um, experience from that, and that would make my scholarship unbiased and that would make it stronger. But I'm realizing that my greatest strength is to bring in my personal experiences and um, to talk about them and to relate them to exactly what I see. A contemporary experience that I'm having in my everyday life that I see reflected in the ancient evidence is evidence for code switching. Uh, After we got past Romanization and Hellenization and colonization, and then we've moved into these ideas of hybridity and um, blended identities, mixed identities. Um, And as a person of mixed heritage myself, which I never used to bring into my scholarship, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like I'm a blended person. I don't feel like I'm a person of mixed heritage. I feel entirely one thing or the other. And so this idea of code switching, which has only recently come into sociological vocabulary, um, is entirely relevant to studying the ancient world. I'm finding more and more that it is easier for me to find contemporary external evidence to bring into my classes as I I teach, to bring into my research. This is Elizabeth Westy who's a professor of archaeology and classics at the American University of Rome. She's just articulated the philosophy at the core of the Mirror of Antiquity, that the study of the humanities, and classical antiquity in particular, is at its most vibrant when the personal and the scholarly are mixed together. She made this point to me at the meeting of the Society for Classical Studies, the annual gathering for professional classical scholars that takes place every January. There's always a lot going on at the meeting, Scholars present their research, new PhDs interview for academic jobs, and people catch up with friends and colleagues. One place they do this is at the receptions that various universities host after all the scholarly presentations are done for the day. At last year's meeting in Boston, I set up my microphone outside one of these receptions and became a carnival barker. Hey, want to be on my classics podcast? And if people said yes, I asked them what they found exciting in classics and how it helps them understand the contemporary world and their own lives. So today on The Mirror of Antiquity, I share 13 of those conversations with you. You'll hear from people working on all aspects of the ancient world, including archaeology, literature, and political and social history. And you'll hear from people at all different stages of their career, from tenured professors to undergraduates. But what all of them share is a passion for making the study of antiquity accessible, vigorous, and relevant in the 21st century. Welcome. What got me into archaeology in the first place, uh, which was that thrill of discovery, that um, connecting discovery and research with discovery in the field and really seeing something and touching something for the first time um, in 2,000 years that anyone else has seen or touched. was inspiring. The way we interact now is very similar to the way people interacted in the ancient world. One of the things that I study is how cities and people in cities 
used architecture to present themselves to a to a global audience. And I think that that that's something that we do now. Different cities have different landmarks that they try to to publicize, different sites, different um, aspects of their identity that that are physical objects that are intentionally constructed or built or promoted in a way. And I think that these are patterns that have existed for a long time, that um, the Hancock Tower in Boston, where we are now, which is a, a symbol of the city to some degree, Fenway Park, which is a symbol of the city, are things that are similar to the Colosseum or uh, the um, Column of Trajan in Rome, these, these monuments that, that represent individuals, similar to the Hancock Tower, which I know it's a company, but yes, it's associated with a famous individual as well. And yeah, I think that these, these icons of cities resonate throughout time as well. The thing that's exciting for me about the Greco-Roman world is how much you can learn from people without even hearing their voices or talking to them. If you think about in a thousand years of archaeologists dig us up, what are they going to find from, you know, this iPod charger that we all use every day? Um, It's a similar thing. You know, we are trying to glean as much information from these people as possible from things that they wouldn't have even thought twice about. The Romans particularly interested in me because I feel like they express their identities similarly to how we express ours. So um, for a lot of them, it's what they're wearing, what their art is in their houses, how they decorate, what mosaics they have. Um, There's this idea that they're their material culture is an expression of their personalities. Um, The reason I got into archaeology was I actually read about Pompeii, and what got me was thinking about the food that they were finding. So you would have this meal that was the last meal they had. And what was it? What were these? These people were sitting down, getting ready to eat or not. Um, But just seeing what they were doing when they were suddenly interrupted. Um, it really brings the humanity. And of course, they're portrayed as these bearded, toga-wearing scholars. <laughs> um, when really, they were just like us. They had hopes and dreams and different identities. And they were displaced or not displaced. And they were all just trying to make it through each day, however they could. It's just a lot more dynamic than I think we give the classics credit for. I'm focusing on uh, the burials at Demetrius, because up till now, a lot of those burials are just kind of described and not a lot of interpretation done with them. And because it was an important port site, you kind of get these individuals from all across the Mediterranean. I'm kind of looking at kind of like, is there a unique individual identity associated with this town place? Or do you kind of see these various identities popping up like Egyptian or Carthaginian or such? With the burials, you have a lot of the time stelae, which have like the epigraphic evidence associated with it. And so you can say like, okay, well, on stelae, this is written on here of who this person was, what their associations were, and in the grave you kind of have the associations with the person. So I'm going through and doing identity with them. I grew up in like a religious household, kind of like you go to church every weekend, you kind of pray to a particular god, and so it's like for me it was like always interested in like various gods. And I guess for me like the burials kind of popped up now, it's like okay, this is how people in the past prayed to their gods. 
funerary archaeology is always something that I've been interested in because I feel that that's a way we can sort of better explore the identities of ancient people in those assemblages and sort of better reconstruct the ancient world in the treatment of the dead. There's no two cemeteries that are different, even with or that are, that are the same rather within the same period. So you find at Farsala, for example, late sixth century cemeteries have opulent funerary architecture like linking back to this ancestral cult and what I'm studying is a our late archaic cemetery at Stavros in Thessaly. The cemetery that I'm working on is from the same period but it has a single pit human inhumation. You have a very different assemblage and it's only probably about 50 kilometers away and so I find it incredibly interesting that you can sort of reconstruct community identity as well as individual identity by looking at these grave assemblages and things like that. The way in which we deal with our dead is so culturally different and is so informed by the way in which we grew up. There's this very individualistic or even community-based way of dealing with the dead that still exists today. In different places in North America, you'll have different religions, different backgrounds. You have this different way of treating your dead at death, of how you think of them as an ancestor. For example, the cemetery I work on has six uh, inhumations of children which is not common in archaic burial sites. Usually children are in cinerary urns, they're outside of the cemetery in separate cemeteries. We have infant burials as early as four to six months old, which generally at that time weren't considered legal persons. So it's interesting that we're seeing there was obviously this, this connection to children in this community that you're not necessarily seeing in other places in Thessaly or in the Mediterranean. The way in which we treat the dead is a reflection of the community of the living. Because the community of the living is the, the, we are the people who treat our dead. So when you're looking at any ceramic assemblage, when you're looking at even the treatment of the dead in the 21st century, you have to understand that that is a reflection of the identity that the person burying the person had for that person. It's not the identity necessarily of the person themselves. You know, it's this construction of identity by the community. Not to belabor the obvious, but when you're studying the ancient world, all the people you're studying are dead. And you can learn a tremendous amount from studying cultural practices around death. But why would you want to? Why should we try to find out about these people who lived thousands of years ago? Well, one possible answer is that all of us, too, are going to die. It's worth thinking about what we want that to look like, and what we want it to look like when the people we love die. We probably won't want the same things that ancient Greeks and Romans did, but it's still striking that they thought about it too. They thought about a lot of things that we still think about. One thing that particularly excites me about the study of Greece and Rome is I think its natural proclivity and its natural pull that it has for whoever studies these subjects to think very broadly and globally especially when one looks at the Romans. I think a timeless question that they wrestle with is this idea of what makes something original or worthy of praise. I also that they're intensely involved with the idea of translation, and I find that really, really interesting and highly relevant to a world that we live in where translation is like so key to everything that we do. I would even go so far as to say that the entire Roman aesthetic project is an exercise of translation. And what I find fascinating about that is that the Romans don't really have a 
an exact word for translation, but they just kind of see any expression, whether poetic, philosophical, or whatever you might choose, as in effect, a translation, even though they aren't using that word. We live in this world so flooded with languages and translation of those ideas uh, that to look at the Romans engaging with this concept of translation in their own way, I think really has a lot of resonance with our world today. And I find that the questions they wrestle with are so timeless and uh, because they wrestle with these timeless questions, it makes them, I think, all the more pleasurable to teach and to introduce to other people. The thing that excites me most in the study of antiquity is bilingualism. That Romans sort of have to learn Greek to succeed, and Greeks sort of have to learn Latin to succeed. If you are a Roman, you want to show off that you have learned all of the great books, and the great books, if you're a Roman, are Greek. So you have to, you have to learn that language, right? Um, if you're a Greek and you want, you want an office job, you have to learn Latin. I think that maps nicely onto our own society, right? A century ago, if you wanted to be part of, part of the uh, cocktail party class, you had to know your French literature, and so you, you, had, to, you had to speak and read French, right? Um, and presumably, if you were French and you wanted to be ambassador to, to America, you, you learned the lowly English. So um, I teach in Rome. And when you go to Rome, if you don't speak Italian, you know, your, your English, right, your modern-day Latin can only get you so far. And the same thing applies in America, too. If you can speak Spanish, then you can connect even better with a large section of our population. Bilingualism is a, is a, uh, a force to be, to be used, and I think both in the study of antiquity and in modern times, we sometimes overlook that and underestimate its value. So one of the ways that the ancient Greeks and Romans were just like us was that they were also different from each other. They had to find ways to interact with and live alongside all different kinds of people. They weren't necessarily any better at this than we are. A lot of the time, maybe even most of the time, they turned to violence when they encountered difference, just as we do. But just because history class usually focuses on the military battles where one culture beat out another one, doesn't mean that's the only thing the ancient world can tell us about ourselves and how we might relate to the rest of our world. What excites me about antiquity is that people are spending a lot more time, I think, than they used to connecting the present to the past. It seems like people are starting to care about history in a way that I haven't seen in a long time. And I think right now that because we are feeling a little bit futile in the present, that we're turning to the past as, as a way to ground ourselves and give ourselves hope for what's going to change in the future because we don't feel as though we have as much agency and so we're looking to examples from the past in order to help us cope with the present and that's what history is all about. History is almost never about the study of the past so much as it is about relating it to us here in the in the present 
there have been hundreds of articles asking whether we are declining in the same way as Rome. And I think um, that's not as interesting uh, of a question as asking ourselves um, whether we relate to Romans because we want to have a sense of continuity with the past not whether we're similar, because I think we're always going to have similar human emotions to other people. But asking ourselves whether we reach for the past when we feel as though we have no moorings and bearing on the present is, is probably a, a better question. One of my favorite things about the state of ancient history currently is well, for lack of a better term, uh, decolonialization of it. And uh, the fact that more and more people are genuinely interested in making the connections between the Greek Greco-Roman world and the wider world in the Mediterranean and in Asia and connecting these things in a kind of broader, uh, almost proto-global discourse uh, about the ancient world. It is important because it breaks down uh, some of the traditional walls and, and really dispels some of the kind of classical myths that, that separate human beings, that separate people, um, you know, in terms of thinking about uh, the Persians as a great other. Stripping away some of those myths, um, you know, works to connect us in a time when there is a refugee crisis in the Aegean that, that is uh, bringing us together uh, rather than dividing us. I just taught a Toya course on Tacitus, um, you know, the way that he scrutinizes his regimes, political systems, uh, motivations, um, you know, people's psychology, um, you know, and to use him as a way to, you know, uh, look at our current political moment, um, look at, for instance, Herodotus, the way that he describes Greeks and non-Greek people, and take that sort of as a, as a lens through which to analyze current ethnic, uh, ethnic issues, ethnic tensions elsewhere in the world. Herodotus is an interesting guy because he's from Halicarnassus, so he sort of straddles the bounds between the then sort of east and west. Um, and he lives in Athens for a while, and he describes all these people. But when it comes down to it, he really is concerned to point out the similarities between Greeks and non-Greeks, sort of saying, like, look, when it comes down to it, um, we're all kind of the same. Um, we pretend to be different, but we might want to scrutinize uh, ourselves a little bit more. And I think that that is an incredibly important and, and a, kind of a crazy message in a sense in the 5th century, um, especially in the wake of the Persian Wars where it became so crucial um, for Greeks to define themselves and they did that in many ways by setting themselves apart. Having students see that and engage with that I think is the best thing we can do and I, I find it a fascinating course to teach and students love it too. Although maybe most of our written evidence and our material evidence are from elites and traditionally um, people of privilege, uh, we're finally starting to recognize that um, the people we've normally ignored have left behind traces and, and we're interested in those traces and these are the perspectives of women and non-gender conforming and people of color and slaves and people of lower socioeconomic status and older people and especially children. Their experiences as a human being today are entirely reflected and these are things that um, are relevant to the study and actually make the study interesting. This shift toward a broader vision of the ancient past was one of the topics that people kept coming back to in these conversations. 
It used to be that studying antiquity meant studying a few wealthy and politically connected men, people like Plato, Alexander, Julius Caesar, Virgil. But increasingly, scholars are turning their attention to the vast numbers of people that this narrow view left out. The archaeologists studying burials that you heard from a few minutes ago aren't studying the kings and princes. They're studying regular people. Those tombs have always been there. We just needed to decide it was worthwhile to learn about them. Similarly, even in material that has been studied and studied for centuries, there are traces of people who have usually been ignored. What I always tell my students is that it's a way of connecting with people of the past, so seeing how they're similar to us, but also getting a sense for how they're wildly, wildly different. Um, and I think that some of the ways that I see this the most are in teaching things like gender and sexuality. So students think that they know kind of how this gender system works. We have this binary male and female. They know how the sexual system works. We have heterosexual, we have homosexual, we have bisexual, we have asexual. Uh, and so they think that they can project that onto the past. Um, and then we get into looking at the literature and they see that it's wildly different. There's different definitions for what it means to be a man in ancient Rome. It's much more complicated and in some ways very similar. So I always tell them, you know, masculinity is like kind of walking this tightrope. You can't go one way or the other. Um, and in some ways that's very kind of gets them into the ancient world, but then maybe they start to see that same tightrope um, in depictions of what it means to be a man in modern America or what it means to be a woman in modern America, where you're again writing that same tightrope. Ovid kind of lays out this idea that a man should be, um, his hair should not be unkempt, but neither should it be curled. His toga should be clean, but not flashy. Um, his shoes should fit nicely, again, but not be flashy. So it's this idea that you're supposed to be neither groomed, overly groomed, nor undergroomed. Um, so I think that that's what's really exciting to me, is to kind of connect them with how the ancient world is both really really different, um, but also in some ways similar, and how looking at it can help them find kind of new ways of being, new ways of thinking um, that they can apply to their own lives. Um, and then if you look at this kind of in the, the modern sense of things, um, there's this idea, I think, in terms of masculinity that, again, you kind of have to, have to walk that tightrope of um, being, I don't know, strong, macho, but not like maybe not going so far into being a jerk, that you're supposed to be perhaps having good, strong, like masculine friendships with your male friends, but you can't go too far into expressing emotion or affection um, because then you might get labeled with, you know, the horrible label of homosexuality or something terrifying like this. Although my students tell me that in fact, um, male friendship now is changing. So there is this kind of insertion of um, emotionality and intimacy within male friendships kind of among American college students. Um, that's kind of perhaps something changing now in the same way that you see um, concepts of masculinity change in the Roman world over time. And then taking the great range of possibilities we already have now and all of these transitions and concepts of gender identity um, and sexual identity actually enhances our study of the ancient world. So one of the things I study is um, transgender identities in the ancient world. Um, and students, I think to them, they're like, oh, of course, like, obviously. Um, but it's, it's, I think, great for them to see that actually the, in ancient Rome, even with this strong kind of male-female divide, 
there are still spaces for people who don't fit neatly into these like prescriptive categories. So people who might identify as neither man nor woman might identify as trans women or as trans men, if we're going to put the modern terminology on it, because they, of course, would have called themselves completely different things. If we want to be able to understand more dimensions of the ancient world, we need to be asking different questions about it. Someone needs to think to look for evidence of transgender identities in the ancient world. And very often, the people most likely to ask new questions about the ancient world are the very people who might seem to be outsiders. When you imagine a classical scholar, what kind of person do you imagine? Probably a man, probably white, probably wealthy, or at least someone who went to an elite university. And a lot of classical scholars do look like that. I look like that. But that doesn't mean we all do. So AOS Africana is an organization that is designed to discuss the kind of different, varied traditions of classics that are not always well represented in traditional scholarship. Uh, this is uh, part of ongoing projects to recognize the historical contributions of black classicists to acknowledge there's lots of intersection, overlap. There has always been kind of this relationship between not simply the politics of kind of imperialism and classics, but also people writing back to that, people trying to insert themselves into that and, and say very clearly that they are just as much the heir to the classical world as any uh, uh, other person, that, that oppressed peoples have often looked at this as a gatekeeping metric that they could do something with, that they could uh, assert their position in this tradition, seeing that there still is a lot going on. There was a panel this morning that I went to about uh, managing different approaches to outreach and pedagogy and uh, ways that the classics can be inclusive or, or work across disciplines. The fact that I'm from a different discipline and have a relationship. I'm married to a classicist. I work with classicists. I, I have this kind of reception interest and this is a space where that is very viable. There are a lot of people working really hard on this uh, that is really exciting, really encouraging. Uh, while there are plenty of conservative voices, there are lots of very, very progressive voices that are doing so many interesting and exciting things in the field and I like that that's represented at the conference. I've put a link on mirrorofantiquity.com to Eos Africana, the collaborative project studying the contributions of black classical scholars to the study of antiquity, and how antiquity has been understood by people of African descent around the world. It's a great example of an initiative that showcases how diverse research on the ancient world requires a diverse scholarly community. And a lot of people I talked to were excited about the ways that our scholarly community is growing more inclusive and about what new perspectives on the ancient world that inclusiveness might produce. Because the best way for the study of antiquity to remain vital is to show how it can inform meaningful contemporary questions. And for it to do this, both what we study and who is studying it need to reflect the diversity of the contemporary world. Actually, what's exciting to me most of all is how we're starting to reckon with the study of classics more broadly, the way that we're starting to really question issues of white supremacy, of uh, gender normativity, and the ways that we're actually starting to see if there are ways we can do this better. And to think reflexively and self-critically about how to be better classicists, better scholars, and better people as practitioners of intellectual discourse. I have a field project and I'm meeting with some people who also run field projects in Italy and Greece to talk about how we can better protect uh, 
ourselves, our students, and our graduate students in the field from issues like sexual harassment and rape? How can we build cultures on digs that are actually supportive, particularly for female grad students or gender nonconforming grad students, uh, and make them feel safe and also able to come to us and address issues uh, surrounding rape and sexual culture? Because it's a major problem that we're just actually starting to say out loud that it's a major problem. A lot of women choose to leave the field rather than deal with these with sexual harassment and sexual violence and so they're not able to rise in the ranks and so we don't have women informing high-level archaeological scholarship. They're not the architects of of the discourse and that's where they need to be and I think the same issue goes for gender nonconforming, queer uh, people and people of color and if we can build more inclusive practices for people at lower levels that will allow them to hopefully participate at higher levels and start to be major players in the discipline going forward. One of the things that I'm really excited about is well, particularly this right, right at this very moment, I'm excited to bring my daughter to to, uh, to the SCS. I mean, in some ways, I think maybe being able to bring your baby to a conference uh, makes it a little less scary and intimidating. Uh, we end up bringing her to campus a certain amount. She's very popular on campus, and she's been very popular uh, here at the conference. Um, I feel like we're doing kind of a public service, like uh, puppy therapy or or kitten therapy, uh, bringing her to this very stressful event, especially uh, for those of us on the job market. So um, right now I'm excited to introduce her to this world and show her all the great people that are doing the, the, the important work that I think we do. So I'm a first-generation college student, uh, and I'm really invested in uh, making classics more diverse and making the, the discipline in, as, a, as a whole less intimidating, less scary for people uh, who are, you know, might not be the same people who traditionally might have pursued this field uh, for, you know, other women with kids um, who are having challenges uh, on the job market or, you know, younger scholars who are thinking about, you know, do I delay my career in order to before I get tenure um, or things like that. So I think maybe just doing the thing I'm doing right now might in fact uh, be contributing to that. But I mean, obviously, there's a number of other projects that people have going on beyond me. Um, but I think maybe this is a teeny meeny bit of me doing my part uh, to make it a little less scary and a little less intimidating uh, for folks. Hi, I'm Annie Lyons. I am at Georgetown University. I'm a senior undergraduate. Hi, I'm Katie Mikes. I am a fourth year at the University of Virginia. So last summer we met at the American School of Classical Studies at Athens at the summer session. We were roommates. We were both, uh, we both connected because we were low-income students, which is a rare thing in the study of classics. Uh, we both found a hard time of finding other students from our background who were on scholarship at our universities, elite universities, um, who also chose to study classics. You know, classics has historically been upper-class white males, and by including women, including minorities, including low-income backgrounds, 
you get a wider study of classics. Within the last like 30 or 40 years, people have started to draw attention to low income, different classes, anything beyond the elite perspective. But it's very, very different for people who have actually lived this experience. I'm going to be studying marginalized histories of people who are like us. So for my senior thesis, I've studied how women exert uh, agency in the religious realm. So like me, uh, they have found a way to somehow communicate. Uh, that's a very difficult thing for women in the ancient world, in antiquity, to find a platform in order to uh, express themselves. That's a very, very difficult thing for women in antiquity. So I learned about uh, religious women and how they spoke to very, very powerful and influential men. And it was generally through the religious context. An ancient religion started off as very cheap in the archaic period and then has evolved into this very exclusive group, especially in the Hellenistic period. Looking at ancient votive offerings or ancient hymns, anything of that nature, dedications, and seeing what classes were able to participate in those things kind of correspond to the classes that are able to participate in classics where if you're high income, upper middle class, upper class, whatever, studying classics is no problem. If you're low income and you want to pursue classics, that's a very big obstacle. There is a very big difference, especially in the classics world, of people who can afford to be in classics and people who cannot afford to be in classics but are still trying to pursue it. Like us. Like <laughs> us. It was never a given that she and I would pursue our passion for classics. You know, and we discovered that in college and the fact that we are now here at this conference and then continuing on into graduate work is remarkable. The fact that we were able to find scholarships that promoted people from low-income backgrounds and underrepresented backgrounds to continue on into graduate study is a huge opportunity for people like us. It is absolutely a totally different type of scholarship for people who've grown up without the assumption that you would grow that you would have a career in academia. And that has never been an assumption for the two of us. And we are not often represented in the dialogue at many of these conferences that are graduate students, uh, professors and you know, many groups that are often represented in these discussions. And so we are, we are ecstatic that the fact that we get to come here for our first conference and to discuss many of these issues, social justice issues, philology issues, archaeological issues that are totally relevant to people from our backgrounds, that are seem so irrelevant to people from our backgrounds, but that we absolutely believe to our core are relevant to our experience. The Mirror of Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, and Yasmin Smolens, with the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies. Thanks to everyone who spoke to me at the 2018 Society for Classical Studies annual meeting. Evelyn Adkins, Sarah Bond, Brandon Jones, Ellen and Evan Lee, Annie Lyons, Lindsay Mazurik, who I'm proud to say I taught Greek to way back when I was in graduate school, Kristen Millions, Katie Mikus, Joshua Nudell, Brom Tenberg, Gregory Tucker, 
and a lot of people with last names starting with W. Hillary Walken, Elizabeth Westy, Brian Whitchurch, and Adam Wisnura. One of my guests, Sarah Bond, runs a great blog for the Society of Classical Studies, which I've linked on mirrorofantiquity.com, where you can also find all our other episodes and links to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. We have a lot of great stuff planned for the new year, so stay tuned. Thanks a lot for listening.